Good morning, everyone. We'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 today, beginning a new chapter. So if you have a Bible, turn with me there. If not, there should be a, a blue one in the chair in front of you, and you could look up the table of contents and find uh, 1 Timothy in the New Testament. If uh, there are any parents who would like your children to stay, please know that's fine. And we also offer some age-specific teaching for parents up through fifth grade. That's um, available now if you go out to the patio where there'll be some workers there. Today we begin the final chapter of uh, the book of First Timothy. It's uh, fairly long and has lots of useful topics, so we'll spend the next several weeks in it together, taking a break for a couple of weeks toward the end of the year, and then stretching into the first part of uh, January, and then, Lord willing, we'll pick up the book of Genesis and start working our way through it. If uh, you're new to Christianity or the Bible or a church, then we want to say thank you for coming here. We consider it a privilege that you'd spend a little bit of time with us today. Christians are people who, in part, uh, believe that the Bible is God's Word to us. And so we are people who think you don't have to wonder who God is or what God expects from people that the Scriptures plainly tell us. And uh, every Sunday we get together, and part of what we do is we work our way through a book in the Bible. The Bible's more like a library than a single book. It's 66 different documents put together that all work together to tell a single story about God's plan to redeem people for His glory. And so um, our habit is to start in a particular book of the Bible and work our way through it, uh, sort of thought by thought, and that means we cover a wide variety of things just based on what the passage talks about, and that will certainly be the case today. Chapter 6 is a continuation of uh, the previous topic, which has to do with uh, churches showing godliness by caring carefully for one another as family. The Apostle Paul was burdened that uh, churches understand the gospel's implications for how we treat one another and how honorable treatment of each other as fellow Christians would work to advance the gospel and how dishonorable treatment of each other would do the opposite. It would contradict the cause of Christ and His gospel. And so we've thought uh, for a variety of weeks about different relationships within the church. We'll continue doing that today. Our topic, if you let your eyes just glance through verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, brings up a very grave matter, that of slavery. And so we'll consider this morning slavery in the first century, and then we'll spend the remainder of our time considering the only equivalent that most of us would experience here, and that is the employee-employer relationship. So if you would, follow along with me starting in verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants or slaves regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful, 
on the grounds that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and are beloved. So as I said, let's first get a handle on ancient slavery because this passage likely causes alarm bells to go off in our minds and then work to apply this passage to modern employment. Although the topic of slavery is appropriately and self-evidently charged with emotion, uh, this is popping again. Let's, let's go to a handheld. Maybe one of you could run one up to go. Thank you. And thanks for advertising your football team as you ran <laughs> down the aisle. So um, although the topic is charged with emotion for us because of the uh, horrendous history we have here in America, in the first century, the text was rather straightforward. It would not have had the same uh, uncomfortableness that we feel just as older men and older women, uh, younger men and younger women in the church were to treat each other with honor and respect, just as believing widows deserved respect, just as pastors deserve respect. These are all groups of people First Timothy has spoken to. Today, we come to that of bondservants giving respect to their masters. Now, this, of course, raises troubling questions for us and demands we think a bit about ancient, particularly Roman, slavery in the first century. Now, I realize none of you got up this morning, got out of your cold bed, your warm bed into the cold room, and came to church to hear about ancient Roman slavery. I realize that. So let me give a word about why this is significant. Today, the, the, there are three primary issues unbelievers raise who have some exposure to Christianity. And they will use those three things to refute our faith. Number one is the Bible's treatment of homosexuality. Number two is the Old Testament conquest in the book of Joshua. Number three is the New Testament's treatment, particularly, of slavery. And so whether or not this is an issue in your mind, I hope today you'll lean in as we consider it because people around you who are opposed to Christianity and know something of what's in the Bible are likely going to think about these sorts of passages in a way that would be aimed at uh, skeptic skepticism and refuting the faith that you hold. One of the most natural tendencies all Bible readers have is to read a passage of the scriptures and then immediately put 
our own context back on top of it and think that that's what the passage is saying. An example, last week in our Wednesday night class, Disciple Makers, we were reading through um, a passage in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 starts out with saying, look out for the dogs. Now, is, is that saying when you go for a walk, be careful? No. What was a dog in the first century? That's an important question. Today, particularly in sports, uh, you'll hear people use the phrase, uh, he's a dog, or more accurately, he's a dog. Now, what do they mean by that? Well, they mean he's a, he's a beast on the field or on the court. And so they're using dogs as, as a euphemism for strength. Now, think of the exact opposite in the New Testament era. In the New Testament, you, you didn't pet stray dogs. You didn't have them in your home. You didn't think of them as your best friend. You certainly didn't let them hop up on your bed for a cuddle before you go to sleep. All right? So it's important we understand that a passage talking about dogs, Philippians 3, is talking about a scavenger, something you'd shoo away. The context, historical context, matters. The same is true when we come to the issue of slavery. We've got to do some background work. 1 Timothy 6 verse 1 uses the word bondservants to, in a sense, soften for us the blow of the word slavery being in the Bible. And in particular, of slaves being commanded here to do something. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants or as slaves, verse 1 says. Slavery in the first century Roman Empire wasn't good. And I'm going to work really hard to explain some difficult questions without making defense for the practice. It wasn't ideal. It wasn't God's ideal. And yet, it also wasn't racial American chattel slavery. It's not what we think of when we hear the word slavery. What we imagine when we hear the word, in fact, bears little by way of analogy to slavery's tragic part in American history. So humor me for a few minutes as I try to give you a little bit of background in hopes that in the future when the Lord gives you opportunity, you can better speak to the person who would want to use this against the scriptures. Historians tell us that there was somewhere between 50 to 60 million slaves in the first century. If that number's correct, then that means about a third of the Roman Empire were people owned by other people. Can you imagine living somewhere like that? Can you imagine going to the market and sort of in your mind playing this out? One, two, slave. One, two, slave. And being able to do that over and over and over again. Even more shocking 
is that the church in Ephesus, which is where this letter was originally written to, was made up of three groups of people. There were slaves in the church. There were what's called freedmen, which were former slaves. And then there were slave owners. It's very unlikely there would have been a fourth category of person, namely someone free, but who didn't have slaves. That would have been uncommon in Ephesus, where we're sure, because of inscriptions that have been found through archeological digs, that a third of the town were slaves. If you were walking to the market, as we talked about, one, two, slave, you would not have been able to tell who was a slave and who wasn't because they weren't necessarily poor, destitute, and beat up looking. In fact, they would not have been. Slaves worked in nearly every stratum of society, from blue collar workers to merchants, from accountants to even governmental roles. Slaves could even at times be doctors. People would voluntarily sell themselves into temporary servanthood in order to work to pay off debts or gain Roman citizenship. If you run up $30,000 on a credit card, aren't you, in a sense, a bit of a slave to that master? In the ancient world, if you had a debt that you would never have the ability to repay, you had the option of working that off through indentured servanthood. Again, I'm not advocating for the practice, but rather seeking to explain it. You could, as a non-Roman citizen, at times be given the option to become a Roman citizen by temporarily becoming a slave. Now, the vast majority of the slaves would have become slaves by their town being conquered by the Roman Empire. And so this wasn't a racial-based slavery. It was often geographic. Slavery wasn't desirable, but it also wasn't racially motivated, lifelong torture either. The downfall of modern slavery in both the United States and Europe was spearheaded by Christians. Christians who came to read their Bible and understand, if all of us have been made in the image of God, then it is anathema that one person would own another. While there were unfortunately Christians who supported the practice, eventually they lost and those who were successful in their opposition won. And so we celebrate the fact that there is no longer widespread racial slavery in America today. This is a wonderful thing. Amen? And yet, this celebration might cause us to look at a passage like this and say, am I sure I want to be a Christian? Am I sure I believe the Bible? Because I don't like that passage. 
I'd like to take some scissors and cut it out. We might even question, why did New Testament writers never overtly attack the practice? Now, that's true. Slavery is addressed a bunch of times in the New Testament. And it is never directly condemned. Consider the passage we're in today, for example. Here, not only does Paul refrain from decrying slavery, but rather he expressly commands slaves to obey their masters. And he even points out that some Christians were slave owners. Imagine being in a church where, as you look across the room as you're singing, is the person who owns you. And then hearing 1 Timothy read and being told to follow rather than being told to be freed. Now, it's true that no, test, no New Testament writer speaks affirmatively about slavery. This passage doesn't do that. It puts guardrails on the practice. It doesn't condone it. Yet, the passage also does not ever overtly condemn it either. So do you see the problem in our minds? The problem is we read the word slavery in our New Testament, and we think about American chattel slavery. So our first issue is that wasn't the form of slavery practice in the first century. However, we're still, even if we look at this through the very best possible light, we're still left with the reality that the New Testament addresses people owned by other people and doesn't demand an immediate end to it. Why? Why? I would submit to you that's a question that you need an answer to if you're going to actively share your faith, especially in academic environment in which we exist as a congregation. Why? Let me give you three reasons. And if you're going to tune me out the rest of the sermon, then capture these three. I think they'll be the most important thing we talk about today. Why does the New Testament not overtly condemn slavery? Number one, I've already addressed in an indirect way, slavery in the first century Roman Empire was far more humane than American chattel slavery. Let me say it again. Slavery in the first century Roman Empire was far more humane than American chattel slavery. I'm not condoning it. I'm trying to explain it. It was apparently not so horrific that Christians had to oppose it at any cost. I personally don't have any question that if the Apostle Paul had written 1 Timothy to a church in America during America's tragic, racially motivated history, this text would be different. But that wasn't the case then. It instead gives us a slow undermining of the position. And apparently that was tolerable to the New Testament writers. They could slowly undermine it rather than give it a full frontal attack. 
which, by the way, would have been stomped out anyway. The entire economic enterprise was built around the force of labor that came through slavery. Again, we must not read on top of our New Testament what we think of when we think of slavery. All right, number two, an outright attack on slavery would have wrongly labeled Christianity as a politically-minded subversive movement. Let me say it again. An outright attack on Christianity would have wrongly labeled, an outright attack on slavery, sorry, would have wrongly labeled Christianity as a politically-minded subversive movement. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of Christians today who don't understand that that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not a politically motivated movement. It has never been that, rightly understood. And it wasn't that in the first century. If that's what Christianity was or is, then Jesus would have met the expectations his fellow Jews had that he would oppose Rome and free Israel from being political captors. Instead, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The driving concern of the church was not political gain or even societal reform. The driving concern of the church was the reputation and advance of the gospel. We will never be able to rid society of every evil. Jesus himself, for example, said, the poor you will always have with you. Now, that's not to argue for cruel indifference to the practical plights of people in ordinary everyday life. Christians individually ought to look for ways to do good to others. And yet the church as an institution does not have as its central aim the betterment of normal social life. That isn't what the New Testament is commissioning us to do. It commissions us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that God has commanded. Number three, the seeds of slavery's demise are sown throughout the New Testament. The seeds of slavery's demise are sown throughout the New Testament. Let me give you some examples. Here in verse two, both slave and master are referred to as what? Brothers. Brothers. Now, we talk like this all the time. We say, hey, brother, hey, sister, referring not to, for purpose of this conversation, biological family, but to church family, to the spiritual connection God has given us in Christ. That's normal conversation for us. This familial language is part of what makes the church precious. But for a 
slave and master to be called brother because they're in Christ would have been revolutionary. It is a subtle but radical shift in which the church relationship becomes primary and eventually would sow the seeds that would be watered and bear fruit and bring about the end of slavery. That brings to mind the book of Philemon. If you've never read it, and the hair on your back of your neck is standing up as we're talking about this topic, that would be a great book for you to check out. It's only one chapter. You could read it in a few minutes. It is the story about a slave who ran away and... Later, he was converted, and the Apostle Paul told him, you got to go back to your master and be reconciled. Under Roman law, that could bring about severe, even fatal punishment. And yet, the letter is written to the slave owner, telling the slave owner to regard the slave and welcome him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. Same word used here. That's what the gospel does. The gospel ultimately reforms human relationships. In Christ, brothers and sisters, we're all equal. Galatians 3 says this very clearly as it relates to our salvation. It says there's neither Jew nor Greek. Now, do Jews exist? Yes. Do Greeks exist? Yes. It's not saying you cease being Jewish or you cease being Greek. It's saying spiritually there is no differentiation any longer. We're equals. There is neither slave nor free, male nor female. Why? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, meaning you're true Jews. Heirs according to promise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Christ's Christian bondservants were told, in a rather offensive way, I imagine, don't worry about being slaves. Don't worry about the fact that you're owned by someone else because you're already a freedman spiritually. You were shackled to sin. Now you've been set free. However, the verse then goes on to say this. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. That would have been a revolutionary thing to say. If you can get free, do so. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, I'm trying to show you places where seeds are sown that led to the demise of slavery even by the way the New Testament talks about it, okay? Let me give you one more. Now, this is a bit technical, but hang with me. Think about other kinds of relationships the New Testament speaks to. Let's say, for example, husband and wife, marriage. The way the New Testament talks about marital relationship is to reach back into the Old Testament and take a principle or a passage about marriage and bring it forward into the New Testament, thereby giving it authority. You understand? So it speaks of 
a marriage as being a timeless, non-cultural institution. That as long as there's time, there will be marriage as God has defined it. It's not given its authority by a particular society, a particular time, cultural time frame, by the government, but by God himself. The same thing is said in terms of gender, and in particular, gender roles in marriage. When those are talked about, the author in the New Testament will reach back into Genesis, into the very creation account to say that as long as there's time, husbands, you're to behave this way. Wives, you are to behave this way because it's part of the creation order. The same thing is done with children, children and parents. Children, Ephesians says, are to obey their parents in the Lord. Parents are to do particular things towards their children. Why? Well, again, it reaches back into Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, and repeats part of the fifth commandment. This is how the scriptures show us relational connectivity that does not depend on a certain culture, that endures throughout every culture and every time frame. Are you still with me? All right. Now, here's why I'm telling you all this. When the New Testament gets to slavery, it never does that. It never reaches back into the Old Testament and gives us some Old Testament commandment or pattern. And thereby, we're being subtly told, if we read the New Testament carefully, that there is no intention that that would be a timeless, enduring, sociological principle. Unlike marriage, unlike gender roles, unlike parent and child. Even in text where they're relating those things to each other. So why, for example, would we say gender roles are ongoing and slavery is not when both passages speak of them sometimes in the same passage? That's why. No New Testament text commends slavery by its usage of the Old Testament. Instead, the unfortunate practice is given guardrails and the seeds of its eventual destruction are sown throughout. This is the wisdom of God and how God has undone something that is truly awful. Not with a frontal attack, but with a slow undermining of this, the ground upon which the institution stood. I hope that helps. Let's think now about the remainder of our time, which, believe it or not, is going to be no less uncomfortable for you. <laughs> Let's think about the modern application of this, namely employment. The, the application of the passage for our own day isn't slave to slave master, but rather employee to employer. 
We might summarize then the, the teaching of this text by saying Christians show godliness by caring carefully for their employers. Now, there's other passages of Scripture that talk about the slave master and what they must do and not do. But this one doesn't do that. This one simply speaks to the employee. So there'll be other texts I could say, if you're a boss, be this kind of boss. But I'm not going to talk like that because that's not what this passage is doing. Experts estimate that we'll spend about a third of our lives at work. And that's just the average. If you have a blue-collar job, that's likely the amount of time you'll spend. If you have a white-collar job, a professional services job, you are more than likely going to work at least 50 hours a week. Given a biblical worldview, I believe that level of work is entirely appropriate. It's part of what it means to be a human being. That's a message for another day. There are only so many bombs one can drop in a single sermon. What we should see from this text is that a third of our lives should be seen by us as providing a myriad of opportunities for thoughtful, godly living. Many times, thoughtful, godly living before a watching world. Where will you spend the majority of your waking hours, adults? At work. And therefore, where will you have the majority of your opportunities to live a life consistent with your faith that puts the reality that God transforms lives on display? At work. Not in here. This text offers insight into how to do it. It shows us here's one especially important way through which you display godliness in the workplace. Christians show godliness by caring carefully for their employers. How? Well, the passage gives us two specific ways. Number one, we care carefully for our employers through showing honor in attitude and action. Showing honor in attitude and action. And number two, through refraining from abusing overlapping relationships. I will spend our remaining time on those two things. First, showing honor in attitude and action. Verse one, if we read it with our application in mind, instructs employees to regard their bosses as worthy of all honor. Honor is the key word throughout this entire section. To regard someone in a particular way speaks first not of what you do, but of what you think. That is, God cares not only about our actions, but about our attitudes. He cares not only about what we do, but why we do it. So kind words to your boss, honorable words, given in the morning, but given only because later in the day you intend to ask permission to leave work early, doesn't 
work. We are to do our work wholeheartedly as for the Lord. That means that God knows when we do that sort of thing, even if our boss isn't smart enough to figure it out. <laughs> to regard your boss as worthy of all honor is to have a mind so transformed by God that you're able to regard that boss as honorable, even if he or she is not. Giving honor to your boss is not about their character, their work ethic, their attitude, or their actions. It is about giving honor to one who God has put in authority over you simply because of the position that they're in. This attitude of honor then gives way to appropriate action. So think of this like dominoes lined up. One domino pushes the next one over, pushes the next one over. If you want to behave in a way at work that is in consistency with this passage, then you first must do work up here. Because the attitude is what pushes down the domino of action. Both your boss and the people you live with will be better off because of it. Both your boss and the people you work with will be better off. Why, why does this matter? Why would we spend a Sunday talking about this? Well, friends, it's because there is far more at stake in this conversation than merely your boss's experience of supervising you. There is the very reputation of God and the veracity of the gospel at stake. Why? Well, because both your boss and the people you work with know you're a Christian. And hopefully they know because you've thoughtfully shared with them that Christianity is a religion about a God who changes people, who can, in fact, transform them. So if I'm saying this is who I was, but God's transformed me, but then I'm behaving like the one I say I was, why should someone listen to anything I think or say about Jesus? If you claim God has transformed you and forgiven you, but you're constantly complaining about your boss, cutting corners, and displaying a lack of respect for authority, why would a coworker think anything is true that you might say about Jesus. They wouldn't. As verse 1 puts it, this kind of situation and behavior would cause the name of God and the apostles' teaching to be reviled. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, there is always more at stake in how we live before a watching world. Let's make the most of the world's watchfulness by showing honor and respect to our bosses, irrespective of how they behave or treat us. Now, a second way this text says we care well for our bosses is frankly one that I would not think of, and yet it is central to this passage. We are to refrain from abusing 
the overlapping of relationships. Now, what do I mean? Well, verse 2 has this situation in mind. Your boss is a fellow Christian. Imagine you work somewhere where your boss is your only other fellow Christian. Many of us have less than ideal bosses. Hopefully, that's because that boss isn't a believer, and therefore they don't behave in any way consistent with what we're talking about. To have a boss who loves Jesus is a wonderful and atypical experience. The passage is saying, so don't take advantage of that, but rather serve that person all the better because they're not only your boss, they're also your fellow brother or sister in Christ. Now, it's not difficult to see how this might happen. Let's imagine you work for someone who you know is a believer, and one day you sleep through your alarm. You wake up five minutes before you're supposed to be there, and you have a 10-minute commute. So you roll out of bed, bedhead and all, and you hurry to work. And when you get to work, you go in with a little bit of fear and trepidation. And yet, to your shock, your boss doesn't say anything to you. The next week, you hear your alarm, and you head out. On your way to work, you stop at Dutch Brothers. The line you thought was short takes a long time. And you see time ticking up near the point that you're supposed to be at work. And yet you stay in the line. Why? Well, she didn't say anything last week. Maybe she won't say anything this time. So you work your way through the line. You pay your $9 for coffee. And then you make it to the office. And sure enough, your boss doesn't say anything. And so what began as an every now and then becomes the norm. You show up late all the time because you think, well, we're the only two Christians here. They'll cut me some slack because not only are we, not only do we work together, but we share Jesus. And therefore, I scratch their back, they scratch my back. All the while, all the other employees are being fussed at if they're late. Do you see? how that can harm the reputation of the gospel. This, of course, is stealing because you're paid to work at a particular time. It's also a lack of respect because you don't begin when you're supposed to begin. You wouldn't do this with a non-Christian boss who was mean. Why would you do it with a Christian boss who isn't mean? Paul says here, do the opposite. Rather than taking advantage of that overlapping relationship, serve all the more because you're helping a fellow Christian. Beloved, where do your relationships with fellow church members or fellow Christians overlap with the rest of your life? Perhaps you do, in fact, have a boss who's a Christian. Maybe you have a teacher who's a believer. Maybe the realtor you use, or the medical professional you go to, or the person you rent from. Maybe those relationships also are believers. 
the underlying logic of this passage would apply in the same way. Don't abuse that relationship because you think that person must treat you a certain way because they're also a believer. Things work the opposite way in the kingdom of God. Jesus gave up his rights, freely yielding what was his for the benefit of others. And he calls his followers to do the same. In fact, he tells us to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him. This morning, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And as we do so, what is it that we're remembering? Well, we're remembering that Jesus himself denied his place in heaven. He took up a literal cross and he followed the Father's will, even to death. And as we observe this Lord's Supper together, may we remember that we too are called to the same thing, not in a physical way and not for the salvation of sinners, but to live the pattern of life that Jesus lived. We are called Christians because we're in Christ. And therefore, if Jesus denied himself, took up his cross and followed the Father, we too are to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him. As the bread and cup are passed, I'd encourage you to consider how you have been interacting with your boss, if you have one. And if there's anything to repent of, do it. And if you don't have a boss, who is, in fact, in authority over you? Have you been showing honor to whom that one is due? If you're not a follower of Jesus or not yet a member of some church, we'd encourage you to just let that bread and cup pass as you continue to reflect on where you are with God. And that's something we'd love to talk to you about later. And as weird as it might be, we'd encourage you to look around. As Christians take the Lord's Supper, we're recalling the death and resurrection of our Savior. Let me pray, and then we'll take together. Father, this is a, a weird passage and not one that we anticipated today, and yet nonetheless something we very much needed to hear. Would you help us to show godliness by caring carefully for our employers? Not by trying hard, but by looking to Jesus, who himself denied himself, took up his cross, and submitted to your will. Christian, may we do the same. Father, may you help us to do the same. As we reflect now, as the music's playing on the death of our Savior, we say thanks. And we pray where we've not been living consistently with what we claim, you would help us to see it that we might repent in Jesus' name. Amen.